Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the big, sometimes blonde and beautiful, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi. (laughs) And by big, I just mean tall. I was just going to say, I was like... Big in in personality and tall. (laughs) I'll take it. Also, I had a a baby a few months ago, so all meanings of the word are accurate right now. For a while, for a while, big was accurate. But Marlo is now just, you know... If you don't follow Annika, are you are you public on social media? Like I is your Instagram public? public? Social, yeah. yeah. You should follow drop on drop a follow for Annika because you'll get great pictures of her baby Marlo and all of her inane theatrical references that she, inane is that what I want to say? Just wonderful musical theater references and theater references in which she features Marlo. It's one of the highlights of my of every day on on the terrible thing that is social media. I know it's such a time suck and yet I cannot quit it. I love it so much. Listen, that's me with be real, honey. It's so stupid. Henny. It's so stupid, but I love it. (laughs) Are you really, you're doing be real? I am on be real. I am. Yeah. But it's like, it's also my most exclusive. This sounds terrible. It is my most exclusive. Like I don't let just anybody follow me on it. Like there are, I have good friends that I don't let follow on it because it's so stupid. And I don't actually care about seeing everyone's be real. But like my really, really close like knit, I'm like, yeah, show a picture. Uh, Basically, you can see that I'm on my couch every single night watching either The Crown or The Vow or some television program. Well, now I need to join Be Real to just follow you. I was going to say, like, you would be on my Be Real. But so anyone who's requested me and I haven't accepted, it's not that I don't love you. I just it's like I let four people follow me because that way I am actually being real. So we're going to keep all of that in. Annika, why don't you remind us of the clue that you gave us for the show we'd be putting in the spotlight this episode? And yes, we are keeping that part in the spotlight because it'll be an ode to what this started as. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Yes, so the clue was that this show had a song originally that was called It Ain't Over Till the Fat Lady Sings. And that was a very fitting clue toward Hairspray, the um, fantastic you know, musical comedy of the early 2000s. Yes, indeed. Um, a modern contemporary classic, I would say. And music by Mark Shaman and lyrics by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. So with that, why don't we dive into the speed test? Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. 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 Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Hairspray in 60 seconds. I feel confident that you will have a better time of this show than you had with a little night music. I I I would say I I'm bearish on my on my uh, my bearish on my belief. Does that mean that I am more confident? I don't know. I'm more confident as well. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Are you ready? Uh, as I'll ever be. Okay. Uh, Buffant, beehive, bangs, go. So, uh, Tracy Turnblad, she's in Baltimore. It's the 60s, and she is uh, big. She's fat. She's fat, in fact. 
and she really wants to be on the local um, dance program, Corny Collins Show, and basically they have an opening on the council, and so she's going to go and audition, but they're like, you're too fat. And she's like, oh my god, no. And she falls, she's in love with the main guy, Link, um, who's like the lead dancer or whatever on the show. So anyway, she gets into detention, and some of um, the African-American students at her school uh, teach her some cool dance moves, and she uses those dance moves to get onto the show, um, and basically it, she becomes like a star in Baltimore overnight and a huge deal. Um, and then she tries to use her platform to get the um, black kids to be able to dance on the white kids show that previously it's only just, they only dance on Negro day and she wants them to be integrated. Um, and then she basically gets kicked off the show and put in jail and then they break her out of jail. And then she protests at the Miss Hairspray competition. She wins Miss Hairspray. She gets the boy and the show's integrated. And that is literally wow. under a minute. I think that's about, I think that's a pretty good summary, right? That's yeah. I think I don't so. Think, I don't really miss, I don't think I missed much. Well, the only thing I would say is that, like, I mean, it's not so much plot stuff, but, like, her parents are a very yes, present part yes. of this. And she has a relationship with Edna, her mother, and uh, her father owns a joke shop, which... Yeah, well, I was going to say, nice. I didn't get all the characters in, but I at least no. got the plot, which is You got the plot, and that her. is the point of the speed test, so that well done. Technically, I think that is probably the best, and that is the best I will ever do. I think I've peaked officially. You may have. That was like really right in a minute and it was very well done. Wow. Honestly, huge. And that will take us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea. What's the show about? What's the idea that the authors are trying to communicate? So this one I think is pretty... Um, I don't want to say self-explanatory, but I think it's pretty evident and the authors have been pretty clear about what was the driving force for them behind the show. And that's the idea of acceptance, um, uh, acceptance of who you are, of others and who they are um, and, and letting everyone be their true and authentic selves. The other thing I, the other motif that I think is running through the show that I think is interesting from like a directorial point of view that goes in with that, that is like adjacent to acceptance. Um, though I think it, I think it should be qualified as like a motif is like the insider versus the outsider. And there are people in this story who are very much like the movers and shakers by like society standpoint or the show, like the Courtney Collins show standpoint. And then you've got the people who are the outsiders who aren't a part of that. And that, that kind of um, relationship exists um, in a lot of different ways. And I feel like I just, as I was like doing my quick refresh of the script, I, I noticed quite a few bits of dialogue that seemed to, um, that seemed to put, forward that kind of insider outsider conflict um but uh yeah so Annika what do you think is the big idea what's 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 your thought on the why yeah I mean I totally agree it's it's about acceptance it's about accepting yourself and accepting um difference people who are different for whatever reason and that I think we can all just benefit by uh embracing everybody no matter who they are and where they come from and what they look like um that seems, I mean, this one seems like one of the more obvious ones, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's going mean, to, what's, yeah. So so with that, honestly, because I think this is probably something we'll talk about consistently. I don't think we have to dive into it here. Um, but uh, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Hairspray. We can never go back to before. Well, this is an interesting one because uh, it is like many musicals, especially in our uh, recent era based on a film, but it's not really based on a film that is 
a super big blockbuster. It's a, based on a film that might be a sort of unexpected choice for a musical in many ways. Um, it is a film that was made in 1988 by John Waters, who is an auteur, a sort of creature, I would say. He's a director and a writer and a producer of movies, and he is his own thing (laughs) very much very much so yeah yeah i mean it's funny because he's like i i I love him because he is i love anybody who just is who they are to such a degree and in some ways like he is a very american kind of um figure he like embraces all of these i I don't want to say like yeah, you know what, I'll just say it, like trashy, kind of like low class, quote unquote, low brow, um, campy. He really has made a career out of celebrating the parts of society and culture and art that a lot of people would see as gross, not fun, not acceptable, like, you know, nothing to be celebrated. He has always celebrated them. And, I think he's um, like king, like king of the cult film and the cult kind of genre yeah. in some way, like cult camp. He's Definitely. like the, the king. I feel like. I think so. I think so. It's a really distinct uh, aesthetic that he has. A very distinct, like he worked with the same group of actors for a long time. They're always in Baltimore because that's where he grew. I mean, like it is. It is as much as you can kind of turn turn on a Tim Burton film and be like, this is clearly a Tim Burton film. Like, you can turn on a John Waters film and go, oh, I know what this is. Um, and he's had the same look, a little mustache, for pretty much as long as he's been alive, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> he probably had one of a tiny little baby. Um, so anyway, so he, um, as I said, was ba- born in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and from an early age, he was really inspired by films. He would watch uh, movies on the drive-in screen with, like, binoculars Um, He loved puppetry. He was really just drawn to these different things. And he went to NYU for film, but then he ended up dropping out and going back to uh, Baltimore and making a bunch of films with a troupe of local Baltimore actors, um, including the drag queen Divine, who was a childhood friend of his and starred in most of these uh, films early. So the first films he made were really pushing the envelope in terms of taste. They were, uh, and he would say this himself, embracing bad taste. Um, And they were really, I mean, they're, they're edgy. They're out there. Like famously in 1972's Pink Flamingos, Divine eats like dog poop. Um, This is kind of the level of thing. It's, it's kind of disgusting. It's kind of dirty. Um, It's celebrating outcasts. It's uh, just a little bit in your face with, um, camp and trash basically um so he had made a bunch of movies that were certainly um the specific and small indie films um and then in 1988 he he starts moving towards a little bit more commercial uh films with hairspray so it's as the show is about Tracy Turnblad, a fat young girl who wants to be on this this dance show. Um, her mother, Edna, was played by Divine. Uh, interestingly enough, Divine was originally going to play both Edna and Tracy, which would have been a very different movie. Um, and the movie was inspired by something that had happened in John Waters' youth. There was a show called The Buddy Dean Show, which was a 
teen dance TV show, just like the Corny Collins show, um, that broadcast in the Baltimore area in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. And John Waters loved the show. He watched it every day when it was on. Um, he was on the show sometimes. It was really a big part of his life. And um, the show had one Monday a month called Black Monday when black teenagers filled the audience. Um, but otherwise, it was entirely white. It was not integrated at all. And in 1963, a student group got tickets for Black Monday and surprise integrated the show for one episode. Uh, both white students and black students just came and were on the show. Um, so unfortunately, unlike what happens in the musical, there was hate mail, there were bomb threats, there were many complaints, and the network ended up canceling the entire program. So John Waters was really like that was a big deal for John Waters in his youth. So he decided to turn that story um, into the Corny Collins show and the plot of Hairspray with, with Tracy attempting to integrate the show. Um, and he said that he decided to give it the happy ending that the Buddy Dean show hadn't gotten. So that was really his inspiration for uh, what what happened with this movie. And the film starred Divine, as I said. Ricky Lake was Tracy. And Debbie Harry was uh, Velma Von Tussle, um, among other people. It was a modest hit when it was first released, although certainly a bigger hit than his other films had been. Um, it was nominated for six Independent Spirit Awards and the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. Um, but what really made it a cult hit was that it started to be broadcast on television um, a few years after it first happened. And then it became like a big cult hit success. So it it d grew in esteem as it was moving forward. And it was on television where the producer Margot Lyon saw it and uh, decided to move into the next phase of our story. And that does bring us directly to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talked about how the show was literally put together. So the only thing I'll add to the back to before that I actually learned in doing research is that Divine died like a week after the movie premiered. Um, and so that was kind of weirdly what colored Hairspray for John Waters was like the grief around losing Divine, who was a really close friend of his. Mm. Um, and there is a really nice kind of conclusion to that we'll get to. I'm like planting the seed of like, so Hairspray has always been one of those things that lives in a weird space for him in his career prior to the musical because it was like a modest hit and like all these things, but it just, it didn't feel like he could ever really celebrate it because they lost divine. So, so soon after it premiered, which I didn't know until I read the wonderful coffee table book, hairspray, the roots, um, oh. which um, has a lot of information about the show in case you uh, are working on it or want to know more about it. There's a lot of fun tidbits and, and things in there. So as Annika said, uh, Margot Lyon, Broadway producer extraordinaire, um, has a cold one day and happens to watch the original John Waters film um, either on TV or because she rented it. Sources differ, but I, either way, on her television set at home, she watched Hairspray. Um, and she uh, was actually from Baltimore originally as well, but did not know John Waters at all. So she had actually grown up knowing kind of what the Buddy Dean show was. Like it was a bit of a, there was a bit of a hometown overlap there, which is just interesting as they met. And she saw the movie and, immediately thought this could be a, a wonderful Broadway musical. Um, so she went about getting the rights from, uh, I think New Line uh, was the distributor or whatnot, and she got the rights from them and started um, putting together 
the team uh, to do the show, which originally featured Rob Marshall as the director and choreographer, um, but he was in early development of uh, what would be his film uh, debut with directing Chicago, uh, his feature film debut. Um, and he, but he leads the show to a reading of the first act at New York Theater Workshop in May of 2000, which, side note, I, that was a shocking detail to me. I was like, that New York Theater Workshop was the first place that this ever was. I, I, I don't know if they just like happened to give them the space and it was like, you know, whatever, but that was an, a surprising fun detail. I was like, oh wow, New York Theater Workshop. Okay. Like, yeah. For something that does feel so commercial, I was like, I was just kind of surprised. I was like, oh, it's literally starting a near theater workshop, at least in some capacity. Although I would say it's funny, like reacquainting myself with John Waters films and what his films were. And even Hairspray, even though the film of Hairspray is more commercial than his other stuff, like it's still weird. Like, you know, it's still oh, yeah, kind of like totally. a weird edgy thing. So it's like the musical has sort of become so dominant in my mind at least as like this kind of candy colored like thing and we'll talk about this later about the, yeah. the but like in some ways it's like oh if you just kind of strip away what the musical musical became and you think somebody's making a musical adaptation of a john waters movie then it's like oh yeah new york theater workshop i could totally see that you know what i mean well and at the time like you know that team the team was a little bit untested like it was i mean yeah. Rob marshall's kind of bougie a little bit at that point but like you know jerry mitchell wasn't the jerry mitchell that we know now like jack o'brien like in some ways it's like pre all of these people becoming like the dominant musical comedy yeah. force in the industry but it's just an interesting thing um so that happens in your theater workshop it goes pretty well um, and, um, but Rob Marshall, um, did like Chicago and did end up taking off and happening. Uh, and so, um, he departs the project and, uh, that is when Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell join the picture as, um, filling out the creative team. And they actually take a trip to Baltimore, uh, with David Rockwell, who ends up designing the sets and John Waters and John Waters kind of shows them around Baltimore and the, the areas in which, um, the story takes place. Uh, and over the course of, of this, you know, like year and a half time between the first uh, reading in May of 2000 and then in December of 2001, uh, they do two full length readings of the show um, at New York's Westbeth Theater Center, um, like a two show day, basically just a reading presentation of the show. And everyone in the audience that is the invited audience goes absolutely nuts for the show. And they raise the $10.5 million capitalization they need in one day. In that day, they raise the entire $10.5 $10 million, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. And I do think it's worth saying and like putting a pin in um, December 2001, 9-11 is still like really fresh in people's minds. And like, I think the spirit of this show and it's you know, version of Americana that is a little weird and a little twisted, but it's big heart and comedy funny, like big, bold, funny kind of thing. I think it it's a, such a great example of um, material that really meets the moment, even if it wasn't intending to meet the moment. It just is kind of the right, it's the perfect place and time, I think, for Hairspray. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such a joyous show. I mean, I think that's one of the great successes of it, it that at that time, just a warm hug of a show is, uh, was very welcome. So, uh, that reading and is features basically the entire cast that ends up going to the fifth Avenue theater in Seattle for its out of town tryout, which, um, is a pretty raucous, 
um, event, uh, Harvey Firestein in the in the coffee table book, there are a lot of emails that Harvey Firestein's like writing back to friend, his like close friends and family about um, the reception that the show receives, which is just um, it's just like a pep rally. It seems there's all the accounts are that audiences just immediately globbed onto the show and were um, like you know just insane. Like it, it's. I'm trying to think of the right word, but it just, it, it, it's greeted like rock stars. Like everybody, it's such a big deal. Everyone immediately falls in love with the show. Um, so the only, you know, the only changes that they really make um, throughout the developmental process, it's, there aren't really huge structural changes that they're making. There are some interesting debates that happen among the creative team about certain aspects of the show. But um, the big thing is like, there are lots of joke tweaks and song changes. They were constantly going through new versions of songs and creating better songs to um, fill out the score, which um, I, I just think is interesting because the score, I think it's such an incredibly strong score. It's hard. It's like pretty close to being a no skips album for me um, in terms of the score. Close. I wouldn't say entirely. I think there's one or two skips for me, but well, we can get to that, but I, yeah. I, it's, but it's very close to being a no skips. I, it's very close yes. to being a no skips album. It's a very solid score um, for sure. Uh, and the other, the other um, debate that I think is really interesting that Jack Fertel talks about in um, his book uh, *Secret Life of the American Musical*, which if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to because I think it's a great, it's a great book, um, and uh, lots of really valuable thoughts and lessons in it about um, how musicals get made and and what. Um, what makes a great Broadway musical. But there's a really interesting point that he raises about the very end of the show, which spoiler alert is, um, I mean, I already said what happens. Um, we've already said it's a happy ending, um, but there's a huge hairspray can on stage. Um, and it's, uh, you know, pretty obvious to the audience that someone is going to come out of that hairspray can. And Jack's um, main point as like a show consultant is like, it should be hair. It should be Tracy. She's the heroine. It's her story. Like she's got to be the one that comes out of the can. Like that is, you know, from his dramaturgical standpoint, she's got to be the one to come out of the can. And Jack O'Brien, very smartly, um, fights him on it, tooth and nails, like, absolutely not. It's got to be Edna. It has to be Harvey Firestein in the big red dress. And Jack's like, that makes no sense. She's the heroine, like, gives all the, like, you know, intellectual reasons why that doesn't make sense. And Jack kind of looks at it and goes, it won't matter. The instant that hairspray can opens and they see Edna, big, big fat Edna, in her big red dress, the audience is going to go fucking nuts. And that is, that's why we do it. That's like, it is built for the audience. Um, and he was exactly right. And Jack stands corrected, but I just think it's a really interesting story of like the weird art form that this is that in so many ways, yes, it is. We can be, we can intellectualize it and make sense of things and uh, do things smartly. And uh, you know, in the way that is, like literarily smart, I guess is what I'm looking for. But ultimately musical, most musicals or certainly a show like Hairspray is being built for an audience and being built to be enjoyed by an audience. And uh, they really had the thing, their finger on the pulse of what was going to make that that whole show and thing work for the audience. Yeah. And I would also argue, I mean, uh, with a dramaturgical hat on, like, yes, Tracy is definitely the protagonist, but her arc her internal arc has sort of already been completed like she i would say learns how to become an activist is sort of her arc um but edna actually has is the one who has, has to change a little more actively like the you know become 
the person who can see herself as like a woman worthy of being celebrated in a way. So like I can I can totally make the argument for it being Edna who gets the big red dress reveal because Tracy, you are expecting to have exactly the ending that she has, which is like she's she's always had confidence um, from the beginning. She's gotten Link, you know, midway through the show like that. That's what she wanted. She's on the show. Um, she's stormed in the door to integrate the show, which is kind of what she's actively doing. But Edna is the one who sort of like you celebrate her becoming this um diva at the end of the show a little bit because she Well she started off in this agoraphobia it's a great point. Sorry, not to, I totally hijacked what no, you're no, saying. No, no, go ahead. But go ahead. it's um but I think you're I this is why I love you. You're brilliant. Because yeah. like you're right. Like she she is like agoraphobic. She won't leave the house. Yeah. And like right. we do we go from a character who will not leave the house to like, okay, she goes out and she gets glammed up and then she starts to embrace who she is and like that that like is fully celebrated and I'm gonna be on you know, local Baltimore access television or whatever, but like, I'm going to bust out of this cannon. Like I'm coming out, I'm coming outside. Like I'm going to be, I'm going to be who I am. So like, I actually, I totally agree with you. That is, I didn't, I had never thought about it in that way, but I think you're exactly right. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting, it's an interesting show that way. It's like the, there's complexity in, even though it's like in many ways structured in a very sort of basic musical theater one-on-one way, like there's actually kind of interesting nuances sprinkled in there i I would say and i think really like instructive smart things that they do that you know it is definitely one of those like shows that is built for the broadway machine or it's like on the as we've like got broadway has become machine like or i i I don't mean that in a negative way but just the like oh yeah it's gonna be eight shows a week and this track does this and this track does that and the kind of mechanics of broadway it is definitely built in understanding the mechanics of Broadway, um, but also like the mechanics of what make a good musical, um, a good old fashioned musical um, to that point. And one of the points I really, that I um, learned about, like they added the um, reprise for Tracy of Good Morning Baltimore in act two um, with that revised lyric where she kind of, she has that moment where she like, maybe this isn't going to work out or maybe like I am wrong. And that like tiny bit of vulnerability that she shows um, does kind of allow us to um us to see a different side of tracy that she has been this like go 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 musical theater heroine that i think um much like you know like millie dillmount and some of these like uh characters of this period and we're still i think in that period of like the heroine who never does anything wrong and is like go 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 is always right from the beginning and that kind of like mold that we've created i think it's so smart and wise that they do have that little tiny moment of vulnerability where we're able to see that maybe she's not going to get, maybe it's not, maybe there's something else that we're going for here, which I, I just think is a really smart um, addition and, or um, uh, I don't know that it's a change necessarily, but just a smart um, thing that they learned and put into the show. Yeah, no, that is, that is a smart thing because it was funny when I was rereading it, I was like really kind of struck by that, that Tracy, um, you're never, even though like she gets, she has so many insults hurled at her, from Amber and, and Velma mostly, you know, fat jokes and all those terrible things that they call her. Like she, because she does have a sort of innate confidence, you, you're not, you're not hurting for her as much as you, you know, you want, you're like, 
like those people suck for saying that to her, but you're not like worried about her in the same way. Yeah. Because she does have this sort of innate like strength and confidence in herself. And like, I'm glad that they made that choice that she is strong and confident in her own body, in her own self. And then corrected it by adding a little bit of like, you know, vulnerability in that way, in the sort of like, I don't know if this is going to make it, but not in a sort of like, am I worthy of being seen? Am I worthy right. of having this guy, you know? Um, so it goes to Broadway um, and it ha- goes with a huge advance and kind of takes New York by storm um, and uh, takes up residence at the Neil Simon Theater for what, like eight years, I think, something like that. Um, this is where I handed off to Annika to be like, it won this many Tony Awards. But, I mean, it's it's a huge, huge hit. Um, yeah. A huge hit. Yeah, it is nominated for 13 Tony Awards, and it won eight of them, including Best Musical. Big, big hit. Big, big hit. Um, it ran for 26,000. No, no. 26,000. 26, <laughs> wow. Shit. Even more than Phantom. I don't know where Phantom stands, but even more. It ran four performances a day for <laughs> even now. Two thousand six. Hey, it does it may it may on the Royal Caribbean. We don't know. They might be I doing mean, four of these a day. <laughs> I mean, well it, it yes. Well that brings me to actually to If my anyone next is listening it, I was gonna say if anyone's listening from Royal Caribbean, hire us. We'll happily create a cruise ship show well, for you. Or totally. hire me. Hire me. But anyway, consider I'll do Sorry. it. I'll do it. Um but I was thinking when I was doing this. So, okay. So let me, does the cart before the horse. 2,642 performances closed in 2009. Um, all the things you would expect, a big London production, lots of tours, international, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in 2007, it was made into a film again. Now a film of the musical based on the film. Um, that starred John Travolta as Edna and Michelle Pfeiffer as Vel- Velma. Um, and then in 2016, there was a live TV version starring Jennifer Hudson as Motormouth and Ariana Grande as Penny, which was, much as I love Ariana Grande, a peculiar choice. But um, I liked that TV product. I, I mean, I liked the movie a lot, too, but I thought it was good. Oh, I didn't mind the TV thing. Yeah. I just I thought that Ariana Grande is, is a little hard to, she's so naturally kind of glamorous. It's, it was a little hard to buy her yeah. as like Penny, you know? Sure. Um, like I could have bought her more as a, um, Amber. Amber. Yeah. Although I like um, Dove Cameron a lot. So people are sleeping on Dove Cameron. There's my, oh, there's a, there's a spicy take. I, I like Dove Cameron a lot. Dove Cameron's great. Yeah. She's great. I agree. So I don't, I mean, I, this is not, I don't have science to back this up, uh, or actual data to back this up, but it's hard for me to think of something that has had as many different kinds of adaptations <laughs> as this. I mean, it's a film. That was made into a musical, that was made into a film again, that was made into a TV version. Like, there's a bunch of different iterations of this piece. Um, and that is just kind of an interesting thing to me. I mean, I, I know there's an, well, what's, there was it's another some, it's a, It somehow feels, well, I, it's interesting. It somehow feels different than, like, you know, a book that becomes a movie that then becomes a musical that then yeah. becomes a, like it, for some reason it does feel a little different. Um, I guess cause it's such, it, I don't well, know. It's, it's, it, it all retain. I don't know. There is something that feels weird about it. I think having started as a film, it's like you're starting as something that is a visual medium 
And then every subsequent step is another visual medium, which makes it a little less common. You know, I feel like when you have a book that's adapted, it's sort of like, yeah. well, it's a it's a page, you know, it's a printing on the page and it could be whatever your imagination can take it different directions. But like when it starts as a film, it's like John Waters imagination has already taken it there. So to the fact that it kind of went from there to the stage and became a different thing and then went back to the screen in a different thing, you know, it's a little yeah, it's a, kind of an interesting, it, unexpected thing. Well, interesting because, too, like, it's not like it has, like, a Hairspray 2 in a sequel. It's not like they can t- – it's the same exact yeah. iteration of it. It's not like, oh, we're going to create the Hairspray cinematic universe, you know what I mean? It's just, like, this version of it and, you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say, and I should have said this, in, like, in earlier, but John – John Waters is a consultant on the adaptation and absolutely is keeps them very honest about like maintaining his aesthetic within the development of the show, which I do think is also very key to its um, success. It does remain authentic to that subversive kind of camp style that he, um, that is so singularly him. Yeah, there's definitely, it's interesting because it's, it's both very kind of candy color, joyous, like quote unquote like traditional what people think of as a sort of traditional musical theater tone i'd say um and also definitely has those moments where you're like (laughs) Like, well it's like it doesn't have like yeah it is both in the great history it's a little bit like little shop of horrors in that way right like it's so wonderfully in that tradition of like old-fashioned musical theater and yet it's subverting it at the same time just because of its tone and it's kind of um uh, it's 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 just the the intelligence behind it, I guess, the wit. Yeah. Or the, and, um, yeah. Yeah, and there's some there's some like real kind of gross moments in there, <laughs> which we'll too. talk about. Which we'll talk about. Yeah. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside? You can't stop the beat. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let's talk about something a little different than we're usually talking about. I'm not going to go super deep into this this song. Um, this score is very pastiche. It's very like in the kind of 60s pop. It's still an excellent score, but I just decided that instead of that, we were going to talk about a sort of category of song, um, which is the finale closing number uh, of a show, what it is capable of doing in terms of wrapping up the plot. Now, Hairspray ends with You Can't Stop the Beat, which is a brilliant, near-perfect finale closing number because it manages to wrap up all the plots that are left hanging. Um, It manages to push the thematic envelope towards like the finish line there you you get a real sense of like something larger than just the action of the show. on your way out the door. It is so fun. It is so just catchy and dancey and it is like so excellent in terms of matching lyrics to music to theme and just A++. So we're just going to go through it and kind of see how it's uh, functioning in this space as the end of this big old show. Okay, so um, at this point Hairspray has a lot of plots, uh, a lot of plot lines and this finale takes place at the big Miss Teen Hairspray 1962 competition, which is like sort of one of the driving engines of the plot, like who will win, Tracy or Amber. 
um, which is kind of just standing in for who will win Link, who will be the most popular, whose way of life will win Tracy and her sort of racially integrated, progressive um, 1960s vibe, or Amber with her very like conservative, blonde, uh, racist <laughs> 1950s vibe. Um, so, you know, that's already going on here. So it's like kind of who will win in general. Um, and it's being broadcast live on the not integrated Corny Collins show. And at this point, Tracy has broken out of jail. She's planned with Motormouth to integrate the show somehow. We're not really sure how that's going to happen. Penny has sort of run away from her domineering racist mother. Edna um, hasn't totally completed her journey towards self-confidence. Velma and Amber are still racist and manipulative and awful. Um, all of these things are happening. How can all of these plots wrap up? Why with a slam bang finale closing number? So uh, let us just dive in and, and start it out. All right, so that is great. That initial vamp is just like already giving us a good vibe because it's interesting. They've dropped us right in the middle of something. That music doesn't sound like we're starting something. It means like, it sounds like we are just like already at the party. And that is a great thing when we are not, when we were gonna be kind of driving through so many parts of this song. It's not really like beginning, middle, end. It's like, here we are, party starting, but uh, the vamp feels already in progress. Um, and it starts with that big like, da -na -da -da -ba -da -ba, which is kind of feels a little more old school, a little more like in the 50s Corny Collins vamps. And then it kind of steps back a little bit and it sounds a little more funky and modern. You've got that kind of spinning record sound. It sounds a little bit more like Motor Mouse Platter Party, which is like a little bit hipper, um, not white. Uh, it's you've got that kind of driving um, electric bass a little bit, so it's a you've got a little bit of that going on. It's basically like representing already what the song is doing, like the Corny Collins show and its style of music has is going to open up into something a little more cool. Um, the black music, black dancing, which has been something that has only been brought in via Tracy, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, but that is going to be a little bit more of the sound. It's going to be a little more modern, contemporary, moving towards something different. So we're already hearing that, but of course it's also uh, giving us a chance to hear <laughs> Tracy's verse, which we're about to hear. So let's hear Tracy. All right, so we've got Tracy starting the song, as is appropriate. She is our protagonist. She is the one who has just stormed in to challenge Amber. So that plot will be the first one. It's the most, it's the A plot, really. I mean, that's the, the reason we're all here. But um, 
Tracy is more than just this contest. So her lyrics are a little bit bigger in scale. She's starting with, you can't stop an avalanche, you can't stop the seasons. And then it come, becomes more personal. Like, I, you can't stop my dancing feet. I, I cannot stand still. So that's giving us already a sense that this isn't only just about the details of this plot, uh, that Tracy is not just about herself. This isn't about Tracy winning the contest, ultimately. She doesn't care about that as much as she cares about the idea that progress is something that you you can't stop. So yes, it is her victory, but the song is telling us from the beginning that it's more about like moving this world forward, moving the Courtney Collins show forward, moving this this society, this community forward and towards integration, towards something that is inevitable um, in her mind, which is uh, which is this sort of move towards equality, um, racial equality. And that's that's great. We're getting this all ready. And we're getting this in this very catchy moment with which sounds like a record spinning, right? It's so good. I mean, it's just catchy. It's uh, exactly what is being described. It sounds like the world is spinning like a hip record. Um, so there's already a lot going on and we're getting like A++ for music, lyrics, and the show theme and content. Records playing, mod modernity, dancing, moving forward, constantly moving forward, like cycling into the future. Um, it's great. It's really, really clever. It's working on a lot of levels. So now we get Link, right? Because this is the second part of Tracy's victory, which is that she's gotten the handsome Link Larkin is now her love interest. Um, although, frankly, this kind of was wrapped up a little bit earlier. We're not in doubt that Link is going to be there for her. Um, I do love here that Link is singing harmony for Tracy. When we introduced this character, he was very much the star and she was his fan. So he was kind of the more dominant figure. Now he's singing harmony to her melody, which means that sort of he's come into a supporting um, role for her. She's the star. And I, I really love that. That's that's a subtle thing here, but it's like a nice moment of Tracy is our protagonist. And also like Tracy is worth following. You know, Link is is not as deep and rich a character as Tracy. So he gets to be the guy who's supporting his awesome badass lady. And I love that. Um, and we get, of course, the first chorus of You Can't Stop the Beat, uh, which is such a perfect line. It applies to Tracy, whose dancing style was more hip than the old Corny, Corny Collins style. It applies to the heartbeat of people in love. We get that sort of beat like excited heartbeat sense. Um, it applies to the beat of the music of progress, here meaning the move towards integration of the show and of the country. Um, and on the most surface level, you cannot stop this beat. This music is so catchy and effective. It really gets stuck in your head and makes you want to dance. Um, all of this stuff. For a number that needs to do a lot in just a few minutes, it's a truly brilliant phrase because it has so many meanings in just the one line. So let's hear Penny.
So we have Penny's wrap up. She has showed up as the stage directions say, restyled cool exclamation point. Um, so it's a little bit like, I think this is a little nod to the end of Greece where we have Sandy, who's kind of like the very square character, um, which is what Penny has been this awkward, square, very white uh, girl who has discovered her true self via her love for seaweed. Um, and so she, like Tracy, is uh, starting with something a little more general and then going to a little more personal. And hers is more specifically about race, just because she has fallen in love with seaweed, who is black. Um, and you got... <laughs> The song has sort of added some black backup singers here, and she's like, this is Carrie Butler giving it a little bit of like a, a soul diva sound, which is kind of ridiculous as is appropriate for this um, comedy character of the most awkward to the most like, you know, sensuous diva here. Um, very appreciated. And again, we've got Seaweed singing uh, support for Penny. Um, I love that thread in this song. But we're adding to it more and more while sort of emphasizing each one is adding, is wrapping it up and then emphasizing again the idea that, you know, progress is moving forward. You cannot stop the beat. You cannot stop this music. And also that this music has like guided everybody to finding their true selves, which is what we're seeing in the lyrics. Um, from the beginning, you know, this has been the way men and women finding each other with, with uh, music and to, you can't stop the rhythm of two hearts in love to stay, which is very much P Penny's um, trajectory because for her, it was the love story with her and Seaweed that has moved her forward as opposed to Tracy where Link's love story was kind of a part of what she was trying to achieve, but not necessarily what was driving her change. Um, so that's a nice little thing there. And then we've kind of wrapped up Penny and Seaweed. All right, and let's see who else is next. Tracy Avalos. In the scene right before this, I should say, there is there is like a, this is the second part of this number officially in the script. There's a big scene, well, not a big scene, a small scene, but a page of scene right before this, um, in which Tracy officially wins the title of Miss Teenage Hairspray. The show is officially integrated. Velma has gotten a new job as the head of the sponsor's new line for women of color, um, which is kind of a funny reversal. The The sponsor ends up being thrilled that the show is integrated and becomes so popular and they, you know, give her, they think it's her doing. So she is uh, trapped in a job that she is going to hate because she is racist and now is going to have to work with black people. Um, 
So it's kind of a defeat for her, even though it, in any other world it would be a victory because she's gotten this big promotion. So that's kind of a little comedy defeat there. Uh, Link has gotten a new recording contract. Penny's mother has shown up and given Penny and Seaweed her blessing. And we finally get the reveal of what is in Wilbur's big can, which is a fabulous Edna in a red dress. Um, the red dress, of course, being the typical finale look um, in fashion and musical theater. Um, something very powerful, as we've talked about before, with why this is Edna and not necessarily Tracy at this moment. Um, so after this scene, all of the plot stuff pretty much has been officially wrapped up. Like all of the questions that we had, all of the sort of lingering things, we now have answers to, but we haven't had the finale of the character who is arguably the heart of the show, and now we're getting that. And unlike Tracy and Penny's verses, which began with the more general time is moving forward, progress is happening, you know, you can't stop like the world moving towards uh, equality, Edna's is specifically personal right from the beginning. And that's great because she has the most personal arc and the least plot-based arc. So we need that space for her to celebrate herself. Although I would argue we don't necessarily need all the food jokes for this character. Um, but, you know, whatever. Um, that just seems like cheaper than this character who is very rich and full. Um, I don't know, whatever. That's just me. But uh, we also have the backup here, most present yet, um, Probably that is partially practical due to Harvey Firestein's voice, which is so iconic, but also it's like a limited singing voice. So I think that's partially they're moving up the ensemble to sing with him so that we're not, it's not in the clear as much for the chorus. Um, but also as the song is moving on, it's becoming more and more and more of an ensemble celebration of what is happening. Um, you know, this isn't just about these characters and their personal victories. As Tracy has said from the beginning, this is about this whole world. Um, it's about this show, it's about this community, it's also about this country, and about the world moving towards progress. So it's it's a fitting that more and more and more we're hearing all of the ensemble, all of these voices, celebrating this with them. It's kind of a microcosm of what has happened in the whole show, which again has happened. I mean, it's so, it's so good that this song can do this again and again and again. You're getting the personal, you're getting the thematic, the larger show one, and you're getting like a larger, larger country view. It's like macro and micro at both at the same time while being also like a total bop. Just A+. Plus.
so good. It's just so fun. The ending of it is so fun. Um, you just want to, I mean, you just want to play it again and keep on going and it's just a total blast. So, but like, okay, th that being said, um, so Motormouth is the one who comes in and says like, let's wrap this up, which is kind of a funny meta moment because they are about to literally wrap up the show. And now we're at the point where, you know, everybody's on stage who needs to be on stage. Everybody has been addressed. Um, so it is sort of like, all right, great. We're done. Let's finish it up. Um, and it's appropriate that she's given almost the last verse. Um, she's the one who represents the larger theme of the show most clearly, which is the move towards progress. Um, she is a black woman who has been denied uh, her her ability to be present in this music world in the in the way that she really should be. Um, she's a parent of kids who has have been denied. Like she, she is the sort of uh, she's sung that gorgeous like I know where I've been, which is uh, the the song that has probably the most like heart and emotion in the whole show. Um, that's the last time we've seen her like singing that song, so we really feel that presence here. Um, she's representing a whole lot. Um, I think the problem with this character is that she's been a little underdrawn as a personality, aside from her status as a black woman. Um, so, which, you know, we'll talk about, but it's not really a surprise that her verse is entirely about the larger move forward rather than a personal journey like Tracy Penny and Edna had. Um, but it is a really nice place to end on. It's a celebration of the integration of the show and the knowledge that the country is moving towards greater racial equality at this moment um, in this finale. So it is appropriate that she is almost the last voice we hear. And frankly, I would, I kind of wish she was the last voice we heard because the song, as much as I think it is an excellent, excellent closing number, does something here that I kind of wish it didn't do and I don't think is necessary. Um, it's a little bit of a stretch in my mind and I think it would have been much more powerful Powerful just end on Motormouth and then that really great like all chorus dance. But instead we have the tying up of the Von Tussle plotline that nobody really needed tied up considering, you know, Amber's been defeated, which is all we really care about. And Velma has been defeated in kind of a funny way um, with her new job. But instead, they the show decides to kind of give them this redemption. So here in the almost last line of the song, and thus the entire show, they get this kind of weird backstory that they're always trying to please someone, and now they're going to have some fun for themselves, which, I mean, I, I don't buy it, frankly. Like, I, I've never seen any of that in these characters before. Like, Miss Baltimore Crabs was about Velma being, like, sort of manipulative and... Um, ambitious, which, you know, honestly, we love a manipulative and an ambitious woman character, sure. Like, I'm totally fine with someone just being not really a great person. Um, so, I don't know, kind of shifting them to being like, oh, you know what, like, we're going to be empowered by doing what we want to inst instead of trying to please someone. Like, also, Amber has been consistently just mean. She's been so mean to, to Tracy the entire show. She's bullied her. She said terrible lines. Like, you know, I'm not sure how that translates as like her trying to please someone either. So I just don't love this here. Um, and I think it kind of takes away from the power of the verse right before it with Motormouth and the sort of song opening up into this celebration of uh, move 
of progress and now we're kind of like going backwards a step to like have these two characters have this sort of whatever redemption so anyway i that is my note on this song i i just think we could have just cut this entirely and just have them go off stage or dance in the back or whatever we don't need this um but at least we get the final chorus everyone is dancing it ends on that great circular you can't stop the beat um you know the almost almost around there with it sort of circling on top of itself a little bit which is great because obviously that's sort of like symbolizing again this kind of continuing spinning of the world towards the future um it's letting us hear and celebrate the move forward it is a near perfect closing closing number um it's almost impossible even if the show before it were not so good and solid if you have this as the finale you are almost guaranteed to go home thinking you, you had a great time <laughs> because you have such a great time in this number um one of the best i think just great and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues uh, about hairspray, both internally and externally. So I think the main thing, I, I think that uh, the question I'm going to pose, um, and I, I, do, I personally have an answer to this, but uh, the question I'm going to pose is how viable is hairspray today? How, if it, you know, as we start to look back at particularly this era of musical theater, which was very musical comedy and that the early, like the development of the Broadway machine and we're, it's an interesting time in the history of Broadway, but we are starting to like go back to this period and revive some of these shows in first class productions and settings. And while Hairspray's had a lot of opportunities, it's one of those that I would say is probably high on the list for somebody of like, should come back to Broadway. We should have a revival of Hairspray. It's certainly of quality. It certainly is um, of a certain stature. And yet I do think that there are a lot of uh, things to contend with inside of it that um, I'm going to out theater Twitter and say that theater Twitter could easily pick apart Hairspray for its treatment of race um, it's treatment of even how Tracy um, basically appropriates the dances of um, her African-American like, friends and, and fellow students to then get on the show. And yes, she does it in an effort to um, eventually get them on the show because she wants to dance alongside them and all the things. But I think there are a, a lot of, um, you know, it, beyond just the kind of easy take that it's a bunch of white creators um, attempting to give voice to black characters. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's a person of color on the entire uh, original creative team that's a part of a part of making this. Um, and that is certainly a conversation that we're having a lot right now as an industry. And uh, so I'm curious for your thoughts on it, Annika, because I, I think this show is really great and I want it desperately to be viable today. Um, but I'm curious if you think it is. Well, it's such an interesting debate because... I think ultimately my answer to that would be what makes the show in my mind successful and well-written is that it very much knows what it is. And I think it kind of stays at a level that is not the deepest level, basically. Um, you know, it, it is a bit, there's a, there's a lot of pastiche in it. Um, the characters are all kind of painted with a pretty broad brush. Um, 
you know, they, they are not particularly nuanced, most of them. Um, and it sort of zips along, giving you a kind of like broad look at this particular issue. So that being said, does it portray especially the issue of race um, and racism in a way that we would look at today as as sufficiently nuanced? No, it does not. It does have some problems that I think are unfortunate there. You know, there's the the white savior complex, certainly the idea that like Tracy is a white person who's able to just kind of integrate the show by helping out her black friends, even though, you know, they all are wonderful. Like, like that is, that is a trope. That is an unfortunate trope that is very present in the show. Um, as you said, the sort of appropriation of the dance steps, um, is part of it. Although uh, to me, that one is a little bit less, uh, problematic than I think the sort of concept that Tracy lends a hand and, and integrates the show and, you know, solves everything. And I think, you know, I also think that there's something sort of fundamentally problematic about the notion that a, a white person with a disadvantage as being fat is a disadvantage in uh, our culture and our beauty standards. And that's very much perceived as something um, less than is sort of equated with being black um, a little bit that, you know, they are outsiders, all of these characters um, because Tracy is black is uh, Tracy's not black. Tracy is fat and the black characters are not white. And there's something a little bit about that that is not great in my mind either. However, um, I don't know if this show could really handle, like the show stays at its own particular tone to such a degree that I think encompassing a lot of the nuance that you would want in today to, to deal with these issues would be more than the show is, is capable of handling. So I think it is viable because it kind of does what it sets out to do, which is present a, a bit of a candy colored, a bit of a pastiche, you know, joyous sixties, um, vision of, society where, you know, racism is bad and the racist characters are sort of villainous and, um, integration is good and dancing is fun. You know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't go too deep. So I think my argument would be because it doesn't go too deep because it stays so successfully at that sort of higher level of, and by higher, I mean like shallower <laughs> level. <laughs> Not, um, I think that's actually what, what has helped its uh, longevity a little bit. Um, it is what it is very successfully. Um, do I wish there were a few tweaks perhaps that would give a little more nuance to some of these, um, issues? Yes, I do a little bit. Um, I think that wouldn't be too difficult to do, but what I do not want it to do is really go into depth about, what these issues are, because I think then you would have a problem, you know, in, in a world where you have like characters like Link, who actually side note, I kind of feel like Link is a weirdly progressive character because he is basically so 
nothing as a character. <laughs> like, he is like a beautiful himbo who, that is it. And I'm like, <laughs> God, you know, like for so like for so long, there have been female characters who are like beautiful and empty. And I'm like, Link is beautiful and empty. And, empty. And, and that is kind of amazing that we now have a beautiful and empty um, leading man for our for our leading lady to be in love with. And, you know, he's like Philia kind of basically. Yes. He's just sort of like um, his purpose is to be beautiful. Um, but yes, so so that's kind of like what I would say. It's sort of... Um, it floats at its own level very successfully. Um, I've, now I feel like I'm completely contradicting myself because I'm like, yes, there's all these problematic elements, but that's well, fine. but it's but it's also I think it also it, it sits at a to me this is like kind of the great conversation of our our time in terms of where we're at theatrically and the kind of things and stories that we're putting on stage is like some things do exist at a shallower state, and I think. Like, and not every show can address every issue, right? We can't, we can't magically make everything address everything. And so in that sense, like, yeah, it stays shallow. It does like, it hides its message in its, in a way it is a piece of entertainment that has a hidden message that comes along. Um, that doesn't, it doesn't feel preachy. It doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel like it's trying to change the world. Um, it just feels like a fun piece of entertainment that also has just enough substance. It's like, no, no, you can, but where it's message is like, you can go out and you can make the world a better place. And mm -hmm. like, I do feel like ultimately that is what it is trading in. It's not trying. I don't think it, it like to your point, it's not trying to change the world. It's trying to be entertaining and fun and also have a little bit of substance. So it, there are stakes and there are things that matter and like, you know, and there are, it's a, spine tingling wonderful happy joyous celebration of of all the kinds of different things that are that exist in our society um and people yeah. and different you know so I, I yeah i i want the show i want the show to be viable i think it is viable i don't think that it's like cancel hairspray i'm not i'm not advocating no. for canceling hairspray but i would be curious for the reaction of certain people and i would be really i would be really interested and hope uh, interested in and hopeful that um, in a first class production or any production of Hairspray um, that the creative team features people of color um, and black people in particular um, so that they're a part of the conversation of creating it and making sure that it uh, and being and, you know, making sure that it's not just a bunch of white people saying like, oh, look how great white people look what white people did for black people. They got them on television. Isn't that great? Like, and right. like, and how can we, how can we integrate the conversation of the creation of musical theater? That's the parallel, right? Like I, I want there to be integration on both sides, not just in the corny Collins show, but also in productions of hairspray. So it's not just, so it's not just white people making it. Yeah. And I think I could, I could use one more pass at the script. I mean, not me personally, but like if they were going to do one more draft of the script, I would say, I would love a little bit more of the nuance that is in Edna, um, you know, and Wilbur and that relationship and um, the relationship that Edna has with Tracy. I'd love a little bit more of that in some of the black characters because I do feel like there is something a little bit strange to me about 
you know, and even like Velma and Amber have a little bit more thing. Like the fact that Motormouth uh, Mabel is like always speaking in rhyme, you know, it kind of feels uh-huh. a little bit like there's sort of like they have some really fun, great characters that they've fleshed out in this, even though it is a sort of pastiche world, they they have like their thing. And then it feels like you do get to the black characters and it's a little bit like she's a DJ. She rhymes all the time. And I'm like, that doesn't feel like a human being to me quite in the way that like Edna and Amber, even though that they are like broad, they feel a little bit more like rich. Um, so that's, yeah, my- that's the other thing I would say, but I agree that like, you know, yes, I think there's a lot in the show that can be, um, drawn out. And I would agree that having a creative team with people of color would, would help a lot. And I was going to say, so the, I would say the pithy way to say that is like in, in its desire for efficiency, is it losing nuance? Is it losing um, just that little bit that would actually make it a little more full rounded and, and uh, I don't want to say substantive, but just a little bit more uh, meat for some of the, some of the s- smaller supporting characters. Yeah. Here and there. I, I think it really depends. Like, because, you know, is, is Link uh, you know, a, f- a fully fleshed out character? No. Do I care? No. Not at all. As at previously all. stated, fine. You know, do I want that with with Maybell? Yes, I do. You know, do, does Little Inez register to me actually as a pretty uh, fleshed out character? Yeah. So like, you know, here it's here and there. It's not a sort of blanket thing. I just think there could have been like a little bit of like tweaky tweaky to just pull out some of these characters. Which I would think that they would be open to. And I would think, I would hope that any production that might be happening or gestating or whatever i would hope that that is a part of it and i would also hope my my tweak my note would be uh can we get lady's choice back in that score because that song is a bop i am all about lady's choice all Uh about it so that's i like let's have a scene of tracy actually like let's like put that scene from the movie in the show like let her dance at the thing and have noticed like it's such a great song it's such a great song that's my number one play from that that movie album i gotta say the score is really good full of bops what is your what is your if while we're here what are your skip tracks oh i don't like the big dollhouse oh that's fair yeah and honestly you know what i know that it was i know that it was debated and i know that mark shaman is very proud of it but i i do have a little bit of a problem with i know where i've been because it does feel to me, and I know that this was one of the debates when they were putting it in. Yes, yeah. Like, all of a sudden, we've dropped into this, like, very serious place about racism in America. And I just wish... I I have no problem with the song. I think it's a beautiful song. Um, I'm glad that character has that moment. I wish that they had put more in the script to allow us to expect that song. To earn it. And be prepared for that song. Yeah, because I do feel like, and and this just goes back to what I was saying, which is like, you know, she's like saying her rhyming lines, which I'm actually not sure if they did that in the TV version, the movie version. Um, uh, I nah, think it is there a little, I think it's there a little bit. It's I know not she has the like same. liner here, but like in this, in the script, it's like every line. Um, but yeah, so I wish that they had basically pulled what that song is through the script a little bit more because right now when you get there it just kind of feels like and now our very special episode, you know. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and that it feels like you're shortchanging the song and the meaning of the song. So, that's what I would say are my skip tracks. Well, why don't we segue that into our favorite things? 
These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Hairspray. So with that, so what is your favorite song uh, in Hairspray? No question. This is not difficult for me. I love this song so much. Run and tell that. Okay. I Yeah, I respect that. I respect that. I... So mine's a little, I mean, I could, I could say any number of them are my favorite. This is one of my, but I love the nicest kids in town. Oh, it's a, it's a great, it's song. such a great number. I love, I, I, that's the one actually, I mean, I love ladies, as I mentioned, I love ladies choice on the movie album, but I love the nicest kids in town. It's so, that gets stuck in my head so frequently. There are a million other great songs. Like all of the songs are great, but I think that is my favorite, which yeah, is a little and weird. And like, but I, in that, like, I don't think anyone's out here being like, that's my favorite, but it's mine. <laughs> no, it's a great song. It's also, side note, when you look at the original cast and who like those kids were, and it's like, so what? stacked, such oh a stacked God. company. Oh my God. Like, yes. So stacked. Like Shoshana Bean, Jen Gambatees, Jen and Lynn Gambatees. Is just like, yeah. Dang. Yeah. Um, so who's your favorite character in Hairspray? Um, that is an interesting question. Uh I guess I would have to say Edna is my favorite character. It's pretty just hard. Because not... I care about her the most. I was gonna say it's hard not to say that Edna's your favorite character, I think. Yeah. I I would I guess my like my runner up i really do enjoy penny i think i do, i can't say she's oh. my favorite i can't say she's my favorite but i enjoy penny um i think if i were working on the show i would have the most fun with velma and amber oh yeah they're great i villains. think i'd have the most fun they're great villains i think and and also i mean i love tracy's a great heroine i mean she yeah. is a really great heroine so there but uh, yeah i think it's hard to say edna's not your favorite i think it's Edna's what I mean come on yeah and also shout out to Harvey Firestein yes. such a wonderful performance like a nuanced warm maternal I mean like br really brilliant and so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about hairspray um well I have I have two things so the first one is that I love the relationship between Wilbur and Edna um I kind of always forget Wilbur's in the show a little bit, but just because the mother-daughter relationship feels so central, whereas like the the Wilbur just feels a little extraneous. So it's unusual because I I do kind of believe that usually when you forget someone's in the show, that's not a necessary character. But Annika Chapin, Annika Chapin, trademark the dramaturgy of forgetting. <laughs> the dramaturgy of forgetting. It's a whole thing. Between that and the dramatrix, I'm just I'm dead. Oh Deceased. yeah. Moving on. Moving someone's got to coin all those dramaturgy related viral terms. I love you. Set the world on fire. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, so I think it's so, I think it's such a, a wonderful and kind of rare thing to see. Um, this older couple that are still so in love with each other. He's kind of a silly guy, but they don't ever really make fun of him for being like a doofus, you know, and... And you have this woman who is fat, who is agoraphobic, who feels like she doesn't really deserve her place in the sunshine. And yet they have this like sexual, you know, chemistry and this this real love for each other um, that 
is just, I, I just love it. I think it's so sweet and warm and a big part of why this show um, really works ultimately. Because th there is a like version of this show where, you know, it's just endless kind of fat jokes and, and that, and the Edna character is like, you know, um, doesn't feel deserving of love, which is different than not deserving like love from the world, I think. And um, I think there's actually kind of an interesting subtext of this show, which is basically about how having good parents makes you a good person, really. Because I think that part of what I see when I see this show is that Tracy, who is such an exceptional, um, you know, character ultimately, like who who has this confidence, who has this strength, who has um, this newfound activism, who wants to make the world a better place, who, who goes after the guy that she wants, um, who's a good friend to Penny, like is, is the way she is because Edna and Wilbur are there loving and supporting her um, and loving and supporting each other. And they're such a meaningful family, you know, and there's a line about like when Wilbur breaks them out, um, there's a line about like the Turnblads are good people or something. And I'm like, the Turnblads are good people. Like, really this are. is a good family, you know, and you see that also with Motormouth and then like, you know, even like oddly enough, Velma and Amber are like toxic, but like they have a sort of mother daughter bond that um, is kind of interesting in itself. So anyway, that's the kind of subtext of this show, I think is sort of, um, you know, love your children um, and love each other and, then I you do can make the world a better place. I do think it's a good point that like the it, it's it would be so easy to kind of to cut Wilbur mm -hmm. out of the show. Like even to my plot my plot like summary where you can like kind of leave the parents out because it's not really about the parents and yet the parents are what kind of what makes the show special. And yeah. like so it is interesting that like they do take that real estate and that time to to show that kind of love and I think it is part of what makes the show such a warm um like just engine of love and engine of joy. Like without that, I think you do lose a substantial portion of that joy. If you take Wilbur out of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, um yeah. Sorry. So that's my first one. My second one's a lot shorter, um, which is just that, uh, when I, my dad told me once that he was talking to the costume designer of the original production, uh, William might be long and, he was talking about the, the matching costumes that Tracy and Edna have at a certain point. And um, Edna's has more sequins on the front and Tracy's has not that many sequins. And the line that William said to dad was um, Edna, Edna has earned her sequins. Like Tracy hasn't earned her sequins yet. And I just think about that a lot. <laughs> huh. Yeah, so Interesting. I'm like, you know, earning your sequins basically is is my second part. What what's your favorite miscellaneous? You know, it's hard. I really I don't I don't know. There are so many things about the show that I that I love. I think you know, I I think you can't stop the beat is probably the greatest finale that of any musical. I I, th I think it's really hard to beat that as a finale. So in some ways like and I do actually and I love a transformation. So I think I guess the other, my other miscellaneous favorite thing would be Edna's reveal and Welcome to the 60s. Because for a while, Welcome to the 60s is my favorite song. For a while. I do really like that song. Um, that also is a great song. It's God, a great song. The score is so solid. It's, it's a solid score. Because um, that's, and that's without even getting to like, without love. Come on. 
also good. I got any. You're timeless to me. You're timeless charming. to me. Well, so you know, so famously, a uh, friend of the program, John O'Brien hates your timeless to me it oh, <laughs> should really? be cut hates it um i think whatever he, i'll let him defend himself you can get in his mentions world but yeah uh he doesn't love it but i i just i so i think craftsmanship and the edna transformation and welcome to the 60s i think that's got those are got to be some of my some of my favorites yeah there's a lot to love in this show truly and that brings us to corner of the sky gotta find my where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon so i feel like and i i think i've alluded i mean i've alluded to this in the previous segment one i just think the show deserves credit for how well crafted it is and how well structured it is as a as a a old-fashioned musical in contemporary times i think that it is kind of the a-list example of of that or one of the A-list examples that um, that I think uh, helps because of its style and its comedy, it certainly ushers in the that 2000s era of Broadway where like this, the producers, and this and the producers kind of usher in the Avenue Q, like make the space for Avenue Q, Spamalot, Drowsy Chaperone, like all Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I feel like the it is kind of without the success of Hairspray, I don't know that you get a lot of those musical comedies that follow in this stretch that um, are outside of the jukebox musical. I think the um, kind of the real dominant force of Broadway for a substantial, like a, 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 you know, a 15 year period. That's like the original, I'm going to say original musicals, meaning not jukebox musicals um, are yes, they are film adaptations, but like the film adaptation and kind of the happy musical comedy kind of thing that, um, I think defines a lot of that period and that may be a little hot takey, but um, Annika, what do you think is Hairspray's corner of the sky? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I, I wouldn't say this is like the most innovative or like ushers in a new era in musicals. I think it's very much based in a kind of like very solid foundation of classic musical theater. Um, but I do think it expands what we think of as adaptable material. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, and you actually, know what I mean? Like, I you know what I mean? Like, it does feel like that to me. It does feel like it does usher in an era to me on a certain level. Well, I think you're right, though, that w- what I mean is usher in a new era. I, I mean, I just mean, like, it's not sort of like, yeah, it's not like sort of rent. It's like the rock right. musical is here. You know, it's like, oh, my or like Hamilton is like, you've never seen sure. this on a stage before. It's like, we've seen this on a stage before, but you're right that like it came in a moment and it's so it it is a celebration of classic musical theater as much as it is like uh a new thing on the horizon um and subverting the genre on a certain level that we see so much of after that definitely definitely um and i agree about adaptations it's funny because like somebody was mentioning how many adaptations there are of great gaps be in the work and i was like no but the thing is like it's better to adapt something that is kind of quirky and odd and flawed than it is to like go for the big popular things side note thing um i do also think that like uh mark shaman and scott Whitman are really solid musical theater writers who have done just a lot of really good work and this is kind of their classic show um again i mean i think much like the show itself 
um, really rooted in in classic stuff, uh, really capable of writing in a lot of different style, pastiche styles, um, but but just really writing some really good, fun stuff. So um, a real celebration of those two, I would say, as well. Well, that about wraps it up for our deep dive into Hairspray. Um, but before we go, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? Annika, what's the clue for the next show we'll be getting to know? Well, this show featured a vamp in a nightclub sequence that was then taken by the composer who had written that vamp as just background music and turned into a full number in a later show of his. Which is very interesting. I, I It makes sense. Um, but it's a delightful uh, little nugget. Mm-hmm. If Kevin Daly's listening to the show, maybe he'll know. He'll definitely know. I desperately want to be his friend. Yes. <laughs> he never responds to me. I've tweeted him multiple times. Never responds. <laughs> be our friend, Kevin Daly. But also the other joke I was going to make is like you said vamp. And I was like, ooh, little vamp in like that Wendy Williams uh, lips. Uh, oh, I'm a native New Yorker. Do you know that clip? No. Oh, my God. I have to send it to you. Little vamp in. Okay, um, <laughs> that's it. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This episode of Know the Show was produced by Michael Fling and Annika Chapin and edited by our fabulous sound editor, Rachel Landy. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on social media at Know the Show Pod. If you want to keep up with Annika and Michael, you can follow us at handles that are just our names. Because, yes, we're just that creative. See you next time. <laughs>